All right, folks, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for 40 years of service that this church has been uh, doing your kingdom work uh, in Springfield. God, we ask for 40 more years and beyond, but Lord, we know that it means nothing if you're not part of it. God, it is our desire that this morning, as with every morning, that you be at the center of what we do. Not our will, certainly not my will, but yours be done. God, I pray this morning um, that you renew our hope. We have been talking about hope for a while, Lord. Make it real. Make it real in our lives collectively. May we be a people of hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I, uh, I asked that we read Nehemiah 4, uh, chap- or chapter 4, uh, verses um, 15 to 20, which, uh, if you're paying attention, probably felt a little odd, uh, and uh, if you weren't paying attention, you know, great. Uh, the, uh, what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 4 is is that Nehemiah has seen a problem, okay? Uh, The book itself begins with actually weeping and lamentation. Nehemiah's off uh, in the wilderness of uh, Persia. He's kind of exiled. And he, he hears word that Jerusalem is no longer the Jerusalem that he grew up in and knew and, and that his, his fathers and their fathers and their fathers knew. And in fact, it's been burned down. And the walls are destroyed. The gates are destroyed. And he, um, he offers a prayer in chapter 1. It's actually a beautiful prayer. It's worth reading. Uh, there's all sorts of ways we uh, could... Um, model the the kind of prayer that Nehemiah offers there. And uh, he's offering uh, a prayer to God, uh, asking to to see success with this king of Persia at the time, Artaxerxes. And and he says, uh, I need to go home to the king. I I need to go home and I need to rebuild what has been lost. And uh, and the king lets him go home. And uh, he gives credit to God, uh, Nehemiah does, and, and says, thank you. Uh, God has done this thing, right? And then chapter 2 hits, and he goes and he surveys the land, and he realizes just how devastating it all really is. And it looks awful. And uh, Jerusalem, the place of kings, and the place where the temple sits, uh, and this place where Yahweh once dwelt is a, a, a rubbled mess. And it's not what it should have been, right? And so what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah is kind of the leader's leader here. Uh, he comes in and he, he rallies the troops in two different ways. One uh, is to build, and he begins to build and, and rebuild the walls of the city and the gates of the city. Uh, and then two, he, uh, he teaches his people, Israel, the Jews at this point, uh, to, uh, to defend themselves against the attacks uh, from without, right? And so in chapter 3, he goes through this long list of people and places. And it could be just another list that is boring and like get yourself through it. But I found myself this week as I was reading through it inspired. It made me think about this church 
this church's history, the people I've known and not known who have made this place what it is. And uh, it names things like the dung gate, the sheep's gate, the, you know, the beautiful gate. Like, there's all these gates that it talks about in chapter 3. I know nothing of. But I do know things like this sanctuary, the playground, a prayer garden, a fellowship hall. And I know that these things don't happen by accident. These are a group effort. What we enjoy here has been built over 40 years, right? A lot of hands, a lot of sweat equity, a lot of tears, a lot of good times have been spent inside these walls. When I think about our future together and who we want to be, uh, I think a little bit about Nehemiah because Nehemiah leads this group of people together to build something. And I'll say Nehemiah has one advantage that um, many churches just don't have anymore. There's the physical building that Nehemiah engages in that you can watch it happen. You can get excited about it. And you can say, that is amazing. Look at what we did, right? You can do that with the church building, and often, if you know anything about church histories, uh, there's this initial excitement when a building gets built, and people are uh, really jazzed, and then there's almost always kind of a, a letdown or a cooling off period that follows the building of a church building. And why is that? Well, because you can no longer see the fruit of your labor, or at least it's just not like visible, which gets me to what I really want to talk about, which is a little closer in line to what Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he describes what a church really is and who we really are. And he says this in 2, 4 to 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, speaking of Jesus here, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, and here he's talking about us as much as this first century church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so while Nehemiah gets to build a wall and gets to watch all these people work together and he sees the fruit of his labor, right? We don't always get to see the fruit of the labor of the church, but sometimes, and this is why a 40th anniversary is, is an appropriate time to talk about this very thing, it's worth looking back and seeing all of the living stones that were built up into the house that we call South Run Baptist Church, right? And the lives that were changed here, and the meaning that was made here, and the kingdom work that God did through this place. This morning, I really want to focus our attention in this other half, Hebrews chapter 10. So if you'll turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, in this, what I see happening is the author of Hebrews is calling us into a few things. But he's calling us to be a certain kind of people, or to use the analogy from 1 Peter, a certain kind of house, 
or to use the analogy from uh, Nehemiah, a wall of some kind. What kind of people is the author of Hebrews calling us to be? Before I answer that directly, I want to give you a bit of a framework for how this is going to go. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, I think, can be uh, built out into three sections. It's only a few verses, so this shouldn't take long. Verses 19 through 21, this is what I'm calling the since this happened section, (laughs) right? Since this happened. And then verses 22 to 24, this is the then you should do this section, right? So you have the this happened, because of it, you should then do this. And then there's verse 25, which is where I want to start, which I believe is actually the context uh, of all of it. So if you read with me verse 25, here's what we find in Hebrews chapter 10. We are not to neglect meeting together, as is some, but in another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The context of the passage that we're reading today is the gathering together of the saints. That's a fancy way to say going to church, (laughs) right? It's what we do every Sunday. It's the gathering together. And of course, uh, the author to the Hebrews is, is encouraging us, don't neglect this. This is of utmost importance. And why, I mean, just to kind of scale back, is because this place is supposed to have a, a, not just a positive effect in your life. It is supposed to be the primary shaper of who you are, right? If God is working in this place, then we come here every, uh, every Sunday hoping, like going to the chiropractor, to get straightened out, to get uh, put in line again, uh, and, and to remind ourselves, yes, this is the kind of person I am. And this is the kind of person that God is calling me to be. And we do this together as a church. And so we don't neglect to meet with one another. And we, in fact, as we do, we encourage one another. Let's jump back to the beginning and get to the since this happened section. So starting in verse 19, the author says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Stop. (laughs) This is the since, since this happened section. Can I just pause a second? And make note of the fact that I love that the author to the Hebrews, who is writing to a real people, who is writing to a congregation, not all that different from the way you and I speak together. If there is a book in our Bible that is a series of sermons, it's this one right here. And, um, and he uses these very dense metaphors uh, of who Jesus is, Right? I mean, you probably read through that and you're going to have to read it through it again a few times to figure out what is happening here. So I'll give my explanation. 
If we really believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again from the dead, then that changes everything. Because we believe, then, that Jesus accomplished something on that. On that cross, he accomplished forgiveness of sins. And you and I, we can enter into God's presence in a way that just was not possible beforehand. And we have uh, the, uh, the ability uh, to enter into the throne room of God and approach God in a way that we just not, could not do prior to Christ's death on the cross. And so we have, what, confidence, confidence to enter the holy place. And so if we are indeed a people who have been changed by the death and the resurrection of Christ— then that should mean something. That is something that we should hang, well, everything on, right? Our entire beings, what we do in this life, everything can and should hang on this statement of faith. We call it the gospel. It's the good news that Christ died and Christ was raised again. And why is this gospel Because it means that Jesus and God are redeeming the world, something we hope for, something we have faith in, and he is uniting us with him in eternity. And so if this is true, and since this is true, and notice the language here isn't really an if-then statement, it's a since-then statement, right? Since these things are true, You should live differently. I should live differently. The people who are reading Hebrews should live differently. And what should we do? Who should we be in the context of our corporate worship? What should that look like? Well, he answers this. And he gives us three things. Verse 22. Since these things are true, then let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Number one, since all those things are true, we should then approach God. We should find our way into God's presence. In this place, for sure. In our homes, as well. And we should enter into it, he says, with a true heart. We should draw near with a sincere heart, right? In full assurance of faith. Full assurance that what we believe has indeed changed the world. That the event of Christ's death and resurrection has changed everything, and we are hanging our hats on that, and everything we are on that. And therefore, we're walking through this world in a different way, in a way that allows us to approach and draw near to this God. Number one. Number two is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And here the author is drawing us into being a hopeful kind of people, right? And to hold fast to it, which is to say we are to grab onto it with everything we've got and to say no matter what storms come, no matter what trial or tribulation hits, we know what the truth is and we have grabbed onto it for full security, knowing that that hope is going to get us through to the end. And why? Because he who promised is faithful. It's that simple. The one who made promises to us in the Old and the New Testament is faithful to complete them. The third thing is in 24. So if we, one, let us draw near, let us hold fast, Number four, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I particularly like this verse because of the word, uh, let us consider how to stir up one another. This word to stir up, if you have a different translation, it might say provoke. Uh, it might say, like, prod. It might say, spur. The idea is that you're actually, like, jabbing somebody to move, to do something different, right? And so it's asking us, it says, let us consider how to, start to, prod, to poke one another, to make each other comfortable, not for the sake of being uncomfortable. Good grief, no. But for what? And stirring one another up for the sake of love and for good works, right? And so we should be, as a, as a body, as a community, we should be spurring one another, jabbing at one another to good works and to love. This should be a place that at times gets a little uncomfortable, because you're with somebody who loves you so much, doesn't want you to stay in the mess that you're in and is, is, is calling you out of it. But do let me make sure we hear this all the same way, which is the author wisely doesn't just say, let us jab one another, <laughs> right? Very, very uh, craftily says, let us consider how to do this, right? Let's be wise about it. Let's be kind about it. Loving and, and, and all of the things that the fruit of spirit demands of us, right? This is how we do this. And then he concludes with where we began, not neglecting, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near. As I read through this, I found an Easter egg in it uh, that you might have spotted, but probably not. Uh, So I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is. For a while now, as I've been doing this hope series, I keep coming back to this uh, idea of faith, hope, and love being significant, right? And, and, uh, And them working in tandem together. And if you read this closely, you would have seen faith, hope, and love in all three of the suggestions or 
commands uh, that the author here has made. Remember, he starts with the, since this thing happened, since Christ died and was raised again from the dead, then we should live differently, and how should we live differently? And he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, right? Number two, he says, let us hold fast the confessions of our hope, right? And number three, let us spur one another on toward love, right? And there it is, faith and hope and love. They're all three sitting there, and I can't think that it's an accident. We are to be a people of hope, yes. This is my focus for like these seven weeks. But our hope and our faith and our love, they all come together, and they're all really important. And if we're going to celebrate our 80th anniversary in 40 years, I want us to be known as a people of faith, deep faith. I want us to be known as people who hope together. And I want us to be a people who love. I want to make it my habit to encourage you uh, in a very specific way to do something with this message. And today, uh, I, I mentioned in the, uh, the thoughts on the 40th anniversary that we have been ascending church, and we are and we should be. I also want to be an inviting church. I, I want us to be a place where people are invited in, where you, your reflex, is to invite people into this place. And if we truly are a people of faith and hope and love, I mean, who does not want to be around that, right? It should be a place where you feel very comfortable saying to your friend, you know, I, I think you would find a lot of value in spending time with my Bible study or spending a Sunday morning with us or worshiping with us on a, uh, a third Wednesday of the month or coming to a prayer meeting on a second Sunday uh, of the month, right? These are invitations that we should be routinely making as a congregation. And so as we go out today, I want to encourage you to do this very thing. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the work of your church. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. God, since you have saved us, since you have redeemed us, and since you are making all things new, God, we desire to be a people of faith and hope and love. And God, I pray that you instill that within us. May we do this both privately, but Lord, collectively. May South Run Baptist Church be a church that is known as a hopeful church. A church filled with optimism because we know what the future holds. We know that you are redeeming this world. And we want to be used by you. And we know that you are calling us to union with you. And we want to call others as well. Lord, we pray all of this in your son's holy name. And we give you thanks and glory. Amen.